Welcome to Atlas, the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society. Hi all, good morning. Good morning. If morning. you guys really just got off, it's a very good day sleeping. But morning everyone, welcome to Atlas in the morning. I don't know why we decided to do it a Saturday morning, um, but We've now got, we have got two special guests who've never been on the podcast before because every time we do it on a Tuesday, they're working or they've got class. So Jacob, Ben, welcome to the show, podcast, whatever we call it. Um, maybe just introduce yourselves for people watching, listening, whatever they're doing. But yeah, go for it. You take it away, Ben. I am Ben. Peter's Wisniak, and I'm the treasurer of MICE for this year. And I was the assistant treasurer last year. Um, what else? That's that's me, my role. Jenny. What are you looking for tonight, Ben? What tonight? I yeah. am. This is where the point where everyone tunes out. But I am a avid Collingwood supporter. Um, so I'm looking forward to the final tonight. It's disappointing. Ben, when Ben first told us he was a Collingwood supporter, I said, one, I was disappointed, and two, he can't be because he's got very nice teeth. So it doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. So but, yeah, how about you? Do you want to introduce yourself, Jacob? Oh, sorry. It kind of cut out for a minute. Hello. <laughs> so my name is Jacob Cobby. I am the assistant treasurer. So the assistant to big old Ben over there. Um, and I was the sponsorships officer for Myers last year. Um, I'm studying law and global studies at Monash, obviously, specialising in international relations. And I am a Sydney Swan supporter, so not the best season for me. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd always rather be a Swan supporter than a, than a Collingwood supporter, but there we go. Yeah. Yeah. I don't follow footy a lot, but I think being a Collingwood supporter is not that great. I shouldn't say that. Yeah, it's um, tough. It's tough. I only say it because my mum's won, and if she's watching, like, if they lose tonight, I'll tease her a lot. But if they win, she'll be happy. So they have to be careful, though. I'd prefer you gotta, them to you win. Gotta, you got to kind of like, don't tease straight away. You got to kind of let it sink in for like, you know, let them sleep on it. I'm very much being friends with Ben. I've learned that I never should say anything negative about Collingwood if they've just lost for at least eight hours because he does get very grumpy. So I, I'd, I'd, I'd advise you on that with your mum as well. You know, take it easy mm. for the first eight hours. Need like a, a cool down period. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I relate to that. That was the mistake we made with the grand final a few years ago. But anyway, um, let's get, let's get into it um, because a lot a lot is happening. But just before we go into news and stuff happening, because you know we live in COVID nineteen twenty twenty, where Donald Trump is president, something always happens. Um, we um, yeah, we've got a few first. Yeah, if anyone likes comment. Your comments will show down below. Um, so, good morning, Prav. Um, thanks, Prav, for the lovely comment. But um, just some things from a club end. We have three events coming up this week with MRSA, which is the Masters of International Relations Student Association, which is our counterpart at Monash Caulfield. Um, and they're as part of the career series that the club's been doing. So if you go to our Facebook page or the MRSA Facebook page, and please like and follow both of them, you can actually um, you can sign up and register to come. They're really good events. Um, the team's been putting a lot of hard work into it. So a special shout out to um, Hammer, who's our VP, Nicole, who's the president of Mercer, um, mm -hmm. Anisha, Anisha from Mercer, who's been doing a lot of work, um, and Prav, who's been doing a lot of great work. I'm looking forward to the elective night he's got planned, and then Sabina as well, um, and anybody else who helped out. Um, besides that, we won Club of the Year since our last Atlas um, so show, good. which is really good. Um, 
and it's something the club hasn't won before. So our name gets immortalised on a plaque, I think it does, I'm guessing. Um, and I think it's just a recognition of all the work that everybody's done. So well done to everybody in our Myers community. Well done um, to anybody involved in organising as well. Let me just add, Ryan also won OB of the Year, Office Fair of the Year. So that's pretty massive as well. He's a very humble man, so he doesn't want to mention himself. But, you know, good job on leading a club to not only get um, Club of the Year, but also you getting OB of the Year is pretty incredible. Thanks, good year for my it's been a it's been a good year. It's been a good year for the club in that we had a lot of great people that allowed the club to be flexible so that we could still offer stuff, which was really good. Um but yeah, no, it's been it's been an interesting year, definitely. Um and I look forward to seeing what happens next year with the club um and what we can offer as we move back to on campus, hopefully. But let's um Let's get into it, and we are going to talk about two major things, one of them being the U.S. election and one of them being the budget. We're going to start with the U.S. election just because since our last Atlas episode, a lot's been happening. Um, and recent, this morning, Australian time, we only got notice that the second presidential debate was cancelled. It was originally going to be, it was originally supposed to happen, um, I think, next week, this upcoming week or next week, I can't remember. Um, 15th, yeah. Um, but then it was changed into a virtual debate due to Donald Trump contracting COVID-19. Um, Donald Trump said he didn't want to take part in a virtual debate, so the whole debate was cancelled. Um, Trump's now going to be doing a rally. I presume Joe Biden will be doing a town hall, um, which for those yeah, who don't know, yeah, he's just with a moderator um, and they have an audience of people asking questions. Um, and he did one this week, actually, so I'd, I'd really suggest checking it out. Um, but I think first question to both of you, what, what's your interpretation of him not doing the debate? Um, I'll, I'll kick it off. I think he, his reluctance to do a virtual debate, I think, is, is, is kind of going back to that, that view of COVID-19 that he has that, you know, it really isn't this big issue, you know, a, a biggest issue as people make it out to be. And I also think that he very much recognises that in the debate, a lot of the kind of role that he takes and the method that he uses in that debate is, you know, very outlandish. You know, he's very loud. He speaks over people. And, you know, he, he definitely has a presence for, for better or for worse. And I think that part of the reason of him not willing, you know, not having a willingness to do a virtual debate is that he knows he can't convey, you know, that kind of caricature that he has, you know, when he's sitting at a desk at his computer. Um, it was quite funny to hear him when he called into one of the, the US media outlets saying how ridiculous it was um, for him to have to do a virtual debate. You know, I, 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 I'd i like to see how he'd handle being a uni student or like a resident in Melbourne at the moment when we've been in lockdown and being, you know, on Zoom for, for work and for classes. But, you know, he's obviously not keen. And I think that's definitely because he knows that he can't convey, you know, that that kind of way that he has about debating on, on, on a virtual system. Yeah. yeah. Do you think he's scared of being muted? Well, he did oh, say that. Was, that's what I was going to say. I mean, like, it's how to how to break his tactic, really, is you just flip him on mute. He's not meant to be talking because, like, we saw him just continually cut off Biden deliberately. That was his tactic, and that was pretty, you know, widely known. But, yeah, put him on Zoom, and he has no chance. Well, when, he, when he called into the... To the media that's what he said he was like i'm not going on just to be muted <laughs> so yeah yeah exactly. and i but, think it would put greater emphasis on his policies as well and is obviously like what's actually coming out of his mouth rather than just shutting down the other person which is i think uh not beneficial for his campaign um yeah. i think he would just end up you know digging himself in a hole how do you think the two how do you think the two parties or more broadly the voters will take this though but because you've got Trump who's probably appeasing his base by not doing it the mm. Biden side's probably a bit more fumed up in relation to it because they're losing the chance they're like you know Trump's pulled out the debate it wasn't us pulling out the debate um but then you've got those independent sway voters how do you think they're going to? How do you think the voters are going to take to the debate being cancelled? 
I, look, I think I think people will be mad, you know, rightly so. You know, in, in a democracy, you should be having robust debate. You know, it's something mm. that we rely on the media to do. But I think that, you know, obviously the media has, you know, certain viewpoints and, you know, they can kind of influence the way that they write stories. So a debate when you're when you're watching them there and, you know, there's just a camera and two people on a stage, that's when you're really getting an insight into how they think and, you know, and their policy. So I think it is very important. But, you know, the <laughs> it's no question that the first debate was was a was a complete train wreck. Um, so a part of me is like, you know, I, I don't think it's a good thing that the debate got cancelled, but at least, you know, we don't have to watch another train wreck. You know, I think that was a quite a sad day for the US democracy, the first debate. It was just because it, was it wasn't a debate, it was a screaming match. And, you know, perhaps not having this debate will mean that, you know, the, 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 the last debate that I think is scheduled for around the, the 20th or 22nd or something of October, if that goes ahead, Hopefully, you know, it will be more of a debate, not a screaming match, because, you know, in, 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 the, in the first debate, no party got their policies across. They really didn't get their points across at all. It was just a, a hot mess. Yeah. You know, this raised sort of two issues here. Um, first of all, is the second debate that important? And I think it's, I, I, forgive me if I'm wrong, but if it was the third debate, I think it would be a different story. But because there is another debate afterwards, I think debaters, I think, sorry, voters aren't as upset because they'll still get that chance. Then again, it's still a lost chance to hear the um, parties on and the candidates on their policies. Mm. I think the second thing is, and this is what this whole debate cycle sort of raised, are debates actually worth doing? Are they yeah. that important? Mm -hmm. In 2020, was it crucial for us to see the debate, or for the American voters, because we don't vote, to see the debates and you know a lot of pundits said you know town halls with just the candidate and a moderator might have been better because they wouldn't have been fighting with each other there wouldn't have been arguments there wouldn't have been something over the top um and maybe sometimes maybe that's what we actually have to look to um you know if there are candidates who are not going to follow the rules just making a new format so that they can't do what they were doing but um yeah i don't know what do you all think do you think the debate should really go ahead or not yeah i mean i think there's there's two things into that the first is yeah their relevance and importance as you said and and there's a lot of research out there that says for americans which are obviously the ones that matter here in terms of the, the voting is that they don't really watch them uh first and foremost and secondly those that do it's such a slim percentage of those that are willing to change their vote or let alone that do change their vote after watching it so it's not so much a convincing exercise as you would think it is it's like pretty much just entertainment now because yeah they're not going to change their viewpoints or, or their vote it's just to kind of back up their their pre-existing decision so i'm not really sure about importance i, I think it's almost taken off as a bigger importance to the um, international level seeing like everyone else kind of cares more than than the Americans it, it would seem almost well, well the, that's, the, that's, oh, yeah, I was gonna say quickly the first debate got less than the first debate last time in 2016 mm -hmm. I think it got 60 million voters last time I got 100 million sorry viewers and this time I got this time I got 60 million last time I got 100 million the other thing is that's really important five and a half million people have already voted that was a report mm. as of two days ago. So really, well, the, how, how much of the debate's going to change things? Well, the interesting thing is that it, it's quite, you know, I was quite surprised that the, the viewers were down for, the, for this debate because you'd think, you know, in the middle of a, pandem a pandemic and, and a recession and a global crisis that, you know, people would perhaps want to tune in, you know, more so to, to the debate. But, you know, that was one of the mm. questions I was going to put to you guys. And, you know, Ryan, you kind of, you already said it is, you know, how how useful are these debates because like ben just said i think a lot of the people that are tuning into the debates already have picked a side and the people that are swing voters aren't necessarily tuning into them anyway and you know i think that you know most really i think it, the debates are more of kind of a, an image of democracy rather than you know a means of influence they're there to show that you know that they are a democracy and they are functioning and i think it's a bit more of a, a show to the rest of the world at the state of the u.s democracy more so than actually influencing people because you know i know that you know when i sit there and 
I watch a debate, you know, no matter the technique of the debate, you know, your own personal views, you're still going to side usually with the person that you believe more in. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, that's what we've seen. I know that, you know, there's a lot of analysis that is done after a debate about who won and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I know that you can, you can score a debate and you can say who won on based on, you know, their argumentation and the way they conducted themselves. But really, no one really wins because, like, you know, if you're, if you're a Democrat, you're going to go in and you're going to think what everything Donald Trump is saying is ridiculous. And if you're a Republican, you're going to go in and think everything Biden's saying is ridiculous. And you're not going to come out of that debate and be like, oh, my, my mind's changed. Let me, I think let it's me, more of an image. Let me put something yeah. both for you. And this is where you get a bit of a... Um, this is where you see a bit of an issue. And this is where it comes down to everybody knows about the Electoral College. It is this, you know, that you can see on my tabs as well. I've been trying to look up how many people already voted, but hopefully you can all see my screen. Yeah? Yep. Yeah. So we go down to the Electoral College. These are the electoral votes that were the same since 2000. So these haven't changed since 2000. Um, and if we look at polling, and we do it very, very quickly, because I'm a polling nerd, um, Nevada's going to go Democrat, Colorado, New Mexico, like they're going to go Democrat. Arizona's looking like we'll go Democrat, so that will be a change. I think 1996 was the last time they got it. But if you look at, but let's say if I put it to the actual toss-ups, the seats that people think are going to be close, you've got that, it's that 171 here. Now, obviously, there are some that aren't going to be as close. I just butchered that. Whoops. Oh, um, Indiana will go Republican most likely um, as well. So you're just gonna, we're going to write that off. Um, it's only because Obama won it in 2008. But you've got all these outstanding states. If they lost a state like if the Democrats lost a state like Minnesota, it'd be a shame because it's the only state that it's the state they've held the longest besides DC. Um, so it's all these sort of states here that that's where the debates, they're sort of thinking the debates are going to become important. Um, and if we look at current polling and actually divvy up the states based on it, and actually he's even got one in Nebraska, I think it's a statistical tie in Ohio, but it usually leans more Republican, same with Iowa. Virginia will go Republican. I think Biden was last leading in Florida, but it's a statistical tie. I can't remember what I saw from North Carolina, but I think it was leading Democrat or it's a statistical tie. It quickly changed. It can quick, this can quickly change. And it did in 2016. Because if I quickly change these states, that's the presidency flipped. So it's something that's going to, it's going to change. It's something that that's where the debates are becoming important. You're seeing that flip in the electoral college. Um, but I think the VP debates were better though. They were easier to follow. The VP debates were, were definitely a lot better. You know, it was a lot more cordial. It was a lot, you know, they could actually get their points across, but even then, like, you know, it was, it was, the, the VP the VP debate was pretty boring. You know, I think that, you know, usually, you know, the vice president of the United States and the vice presidential candidate is very much trying to, you know, not steal the spotlight. You know, that's kind of their role. They're kind of there as a partner. They're not stealing the spotlight. They're just kind of repeating, you know, what what the presidential candidates have said. And, and that's very much what we saw, you know, on on the VP. Um, I mean, if, if you know, if you're Pence, it's, it's going to be quite hard to, to steal the spotlight from Trump anyway. Um, perhaps not so much for, for Harris, but mm-hmm. he didn't do a bad job, Pence. He was a lot stronger than I think people write him off. You know, he's the guy in the background. A lot of people in 2016 said, Why is there a name Pence on Trump's signs? Not realizing he was the running mate. Um, ben, what do you think? Did you end up watching it? I, I've only seen bits, I'll be honest. I didn't watch the full one still yet, too. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think he was surprising. Um, Harris is definitely, I think, stronger. Mm. But that could just be me being biased. Um, but yeah, I mean, such a crazy situation that we're in. 
Like yeah. sometimes you just have to step back and be like, what is going on? <laughs> um, I am. Um, <laughs> um, I think one, one thing I'll add just briefly is one thing that I think Harris did really, really well is the way that she handled the, the interruptions from Pence. There, there weren't many, you know, there were quite a few interruptions, but it was nowhere near, you know, the, the, the Trump and, and Biden scenario mm. situation. But, you know, the way that she handled those interruptions, I think, was extremely classy and it was, you know, very presidential-like, you know, particularly, you know, when a few times, you know, she was saying, Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the method that she used in that, she did it in a very polite way, but it also meant that um, that, that Pence had to, you know, kind of stop talking because what do you do, you know, when, when someone's saying it to you like that in such a nice way? So I think that her technique was pretty good. And like I said, like Ben said, I think that I kind of thought that she performed a lot better, had a lot more personality and was a lot more passionate. I um, think she I mean, dealt with the interruptions better than Biden. Probably. Yeah. yeah. And she didn't call him a clown, which was good. But um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, and I know we have to move on to the next topic, but, you That's know, thanks. Um, I think Kamala Harris had some really strong points when she spoke to the American people. I don't know who's coaching Biden and Harris, but looking into the camera, has been really strong for both of them. And I don't know if you know, notice that in both debates. Yeah. They both they really look deep moments. into your soul, like and yeah. deep, yeah. very convincing. And they had some really strong mm. points. Pence had a very consistent performance. And I know he had the fly in his head and it distracted a lot of people. But you can tell Pence is a seasoned politician. He was a member, I think he was a member of the House of Representatives. He was the governor from Indiana. He's had mm. this debate experience and it really showed off. I think he's probably had more debate experience than Kamala Harris and that saved him. And I think if you look at the comparison between Trump and Pence, Pence was a much better debater and he didn't have to rely on, like he didn't have to rely on constant digs into the personal lives of um, his the other VP candidate, which he didn't do. Um, and that and Harris didn't either. So it was a much cleaner debate overall. So I think he was more consistent. Mm. Harris had these stronger moments, had some strong moments. Um, one, thing and, I will, one thing I will add, though, just to that comment about kind of, you know, technical debate performance, I think that, you know, technical debate performance is one thing. And, you know, he's clearly a seasoned debater. But I think that the way that Harris performed, I think she was, she was it was a lot easier to relate to her. And I think that a lot of Americans would would feel that you know she she spoke in a way that was that was I thought was quite down to earth and she's you know Pence seemed kind of kind of very removed from the debate it was you know like he wasn't removed but it was kind of it was just a bit boring whereas I think a lot of people at this time in a recession a lot of people at this time in a pandemic they're passionate they're angry they're not happy and I think Harris was able to show that and relate to people in a way that was respectful. And I think that's why ultimately she has the, had the debate. Which I think is a really interesting point to make when uh, in the 2016 elections, that was pretty much one of the main points that Trump was leading on was, you know, like draining the swamp of these politicians that you can't relate to um, that have been there forever, um, which is, you know, like it's a flip really because now you've got, um harris which is being more relatable yeah and then we've also got biden that <laughs> isn't relatable at all really so yeah counterbalance. i was gonna say do, yeah, not, yeah. Right, do not underestimate vp candidates and the reason i say that is the vp choice is very strategic they do it in a way to balance out the ticket and get a swing state but the other thing is a vp the VP was largely, you know, overlooked. Originally, it was the runner-up in the Electoral College got the VP spot until they changed it after what happened in 1800. So if you're ever interested, go read up on it. But, what but happened in 1800? All the way back in 1800. Um, but it's, inter it's interesting. And that's when they had um, a runoff election. Um, and I think Thomas Jefferson became the third president. But it's interesting to look at how important it is 
in the selection. You know, especially in this case, you've got two old candidates. Donald Trump said in a video, and I don't know if you saw this, um, he was doing a video to senior citizens and he goes, you probably can't believe it, but I'm a senior. Like we know you're yeah. 70 years old. You, Biden you very much look like a senior. The two people to be elected. Yeah, he was. And yeah. if Biden does, he will become. And then they'll be the pre they'll be VPs to the oldest presidents. And that's a very risky, that's a risky job. You need to be ready for it. But the other thing is, with Trump in COVID in isolation, Biden's also been very careful. But Biden, we also have to realise he's an older man. The is VP Trump in <laughs> Oh, whatever. Um, whatever yeah, he's he seems to be out there in cars waving and having a good old the time. The VP candidates have to like do a lot of the punting at the end of the mm -hmm. day. And I have to be really active. Joe Biden in 2008 was a very active VP candidate. Um, and to some extent in 2012 as well. Um, Al Gore was when he was the V when he was the VP can um VP. Um and even George H.W. Bush. But this election, out of all recent elections, is the most important for a VP candidate in recent history um do you guys want to say anything else or shall we move on to the budget i don't know i i would just say that what a wild time you know the president of the us has coronavirus and is you know i i, I think he's making out his his symptoms to be a lot less than they probably are and i think that's has a lot to do with the medication he's receiving um but it'll just be interesting to to see you know what happens with that in the end you know i know that there's Quite a few experts that are that are out there that are worried that you know there could be a reversal of, of his condition um at some stage soon because a lot of experts say that around that 10-day mark five to ten day mark it can get you know quite quite bad and you know i definitely relate to that so it'll be interesting to see what happens yeah and i, I saw that um when he was showing that he's you know getting getting back to work was it i think he, he posted about but the, the photographs that they took of him getting back to work were taken, I think, like four minutes apart. So it was clearly um, just like a photo shoot to pretend that he was working. It wasn't actually, you know, candid photos, which is interesting. I think, obviously, when we're talking debates, I think we have to mention, like, the New Zealand debate and just how stark of a difference it was. It was a debate f full of... Uh, you know, underlying respect for um, the opposing candidate, um, um, actual strong debate, um, you know, using your actual political uh, policies rather than personal digs. Mm -hmm. um, I just think it was polar opposite, um, which was also interesting considering both had live audiences. And there's a lot of studies that say that live audiences, as you said, Ryan earlier, that's sort of the main difference. Um, as well as who the moderator is um, mm. in sort of creating a debate rather than entertainment. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, the debates have radically declined, um, you know, like in the, in the, even with Nixon, um, even Nixon of all people, he, that back then they didn't have live audiences and their debates were much stronger, um, you know, more like the New Zealand one based on policy rather than personal digs and entertainment. So if, I think that's if I may, If I may, on the Nixon one, if you look to his debate in 1960, he won the radio debate, he lost the TV debate because people looked at the charisma of John F. Kennedy, supported him, but when they heard Nixon, they supported, and without the look, they supported mm -hmm. him. So that might, that's also an interesting analysis. Let's move on to the budget. So Tuesday, the Australian budget was um, unveiled, the federal budget, which is um, comes during a recession during COVID-19. Victoria is still in lockdown. States are emerging from lockdown still. Um, please do not ask me about the specifics of state lockdowns because they change way too much and I'm really confused about them. Um, ben will know this, but when we did the we did Monash, so we did the Monash model United Nations, we were in the um, Australian New Zealand cabinet and I felt like it was really difficult to follow because just there are constant changes and restrictions but there are a few but the budget had a few main talking points um, tax cuts for more than 11 million Australians Australians can't speak today um, not a great day not to be able to speak changes to the tax bracket um, 
the gov I think two hundred dollars per week to hire young Australians. Um, and I think both of you will. I'll give you. I'll open to both of you shortly. Um, um, additional welfare support for pensioners and anybody who else is eligible. The extension of the JobKeeper to 28 March 2021, which we knew for ages anyway. Um, in relation to education, there was a $1 billion in research. Um, but also in that respect, um, there was also the passage of the legislation that meant that university fees could go up. Um, and then there was packages in regards to healthcare for older Australians, um, small business assistance, um, but I, and money for infrastructure, things like the Brisbane, Melbourne, Inland Rail, Western Sydney, International Airport development. Um, what I'm going to do is I want to open up to both of you and I want your general interpret interpretations. Don't just say that, so what did you like about the budget? What didn't you like about the budget? Um, right. I'll, yeah, this, I'll, I'll start. Look, I think that the the amount of spending in the budget, you know, is is very appropriate for the recession that we're in, and I think that that was that I think that was a good thing for you know a more fiscally conservative government to do, you know, especially off the back of you know the 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 um criticisms they had over the, the handling of the GFC back in the day. So I think that the level of spending is good and appropriate. However, I think the priority of that spending and where that spending is going to is a little bit off. Um, you know, there, there were a few things that I was disappointed with in the budget. You know, one of those things is, you know, the fact that it was hailed for the days leading up as a women's budget, but really, you know, there was not much for women at all. There was, you know, 240 million, I think, to go to some women's initiatives to, to, to help women, you know, get in work and, and, you know, work in safer environments, which is fantastic stuff. But there was just, you know, not enough of it at all. Um, and you know, that was at the same time when there was n really no, no, you know, stimulus for for industries that are dominated by women. You know, which was quite disappointing as well. The only other thing I'll add is I think that it was a, a missed opportunity for investment in social housing. Um, you know, there was a there was a one billion dollar, I think. Uh, uh, $1 billion given to, to developers and stuff to, to build social housing. Um, but we know that that does not help, you know, the people on the lowest income and the people that really need that social housing. And I think looking back to, you know, Rudd's um, social housing building in, in the GFC when, you know, 20, over 20,000 units were built, it created 14,000 jobs. We know that, you know, almost 10% of our jobs in this country are linked to home building. And I think that this was a perfect opportunity where the social aspects and the economic as aspects lined up perfectly to really invest in social housing. And it was just disappointed. It was just disappointing that, you know, that didn't happen. And, and the last, the only last thing I'll add is, um, which is something that doesn't get as much um, media coverage, is that it was quite a secretive bu budget as well. It was out of all budgets, it had the most, um, the most uh, marks of no publication in the budget. There were a few sneaky yeah. things that happened around the purchasing of offshore um, floating oil platforms in the Timor Sea that, you know, the budget, the, the government was really trying to work around and not make it quite obvious, which is quite, you know, concerning when we are in a climate emergency and, you know, these are potential, um, you know, environmental disasters that they're not being upfront about their investment in. Was that 384 from the last record of 321 or am I... Is not, yeah, my going, the last record I, was 321 in 2017, 2018. So yeah. it was a substantial bump. You know, obviously in a budget, there's going to be countless things that they can't publish, you know, that's to be expected. Yeah. But I think that, you know, there's there's a few things here that have clearly been hidden, um, which, you know, I think is kind of in line with the secretive, you know, ways of, of, of this government, unfortunately. But it's just a bit disappointing, especially in a recession. We want to know where the money's going. How about you, Jeff? How about you, Ben? Just call me Jeff. No, I called you Jels. I called you Jacob, and I tried to save it, but I didn't. So, how about you, Ben? Um, yeah, I would agree pretty much wholeheartedly with what Jacob has said. I think with the amount that was spent, there was a real opportunity um, to help different areas of the economy. That it wasn't; it was very top down rather than bottom up. Um, in terms of social housing, sorry, the birds are going crazy outside. Um, 
Thanks, Frankie. Uh, in terms of social housing, I thought that was really disappointing. Again, with pairing with your point about um, helping the women's budget, um, so-called. Um, obviously, older women are some of the most vulnerable people in society. <laughs> Thanks, James. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing at the comments. Uh, yeah, so I think for a budget that was to help women, I think a lack of social housing um, in the current economic climate is, is quite problematic. Um, obviously, older women needing social housing is a massive thing that's coming up at the moment. Um, economically, I think, yeah, definitely should be supporting the lower rungs of society more in the recession. Um, I think in terms of economic projections, the whole budget is quite uh, risky, I guess, in terms of the projections. I mean, it runs on a model that um, thinks that people are going to spend 100% of the uh, added income from the tax cuts, which to an economist is quite ridiculous. Like that just doesn't happen, especially in a recession. So yeah, exactly. Uh, people will save that because they're unsure about the future. So I think uh, little on aged care reform either kicking that can now. Yeah, can yeah, that's definitely. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I, just if anybody wants to put any comments, just in yeah, the comments section. And I think, you know, that that age care, that lack of age care reform or really, you know, a jump in age for age care funding is so concerning, you know, looking at how age what's happened to age cares in, in Victoria, you know, that are under, you know, unfortunately federal oversight and, you know, the, the coronavirus has unfortunately been able to to get into so many of those aged care homes. And that's why, you know, out of the I think eight hundred and ninety seven deaths that we've had in Australia you know, 800 uh, 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 from Victoria and, uh, you know, a lot of those would be, I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but, you know, probably the majority, if, you know, almost the majority perhaps would be from aged care homes, which is very, you know, concerning. And the only yeah. other thing I'd add is I think it, I think there's also some issues. It, it's nice how they tried to do some stuff for young people in this budget, you know, with with the um the uh, giving, you know, handing to businesses, yeah. Yeah, exactly, the incentives. But I think that there's also quite a concern with just a lack of stuff for people over the age of 35. And we know that, you know, in a recession and when people, as they get older in the workforce, we know that so often, unfortunately, people that are over the age of 35, you know, in their 40s, in their early 50s, when they lose a job as a result of the recession, so many people don't get back into work for their entire lives or they're in casual employment and, you know, they're kind of running around from things to, th to from different jobs to other jobs. So I think, you know, it's great that we have some stuff for young people and I welcome that. Um, but I think there needs to be some stuff for older people as well because they do struggle so horribly in recessions. Yeah. yeah. And even um, just that they didn't increase uh, job seeker, I think, has been quite yes. contentious. I think there's no, there's no information on it, is there, um, what it's going to look like after Christmas. What I was... Mm. I was going to ask you both something. Do you think that the Nash, do you think a federal, but do you think COVID-19 has shown us that something, some things within the federal budget, such as aged care reform, or even other points need greater collaboration from the national cabinet? Do you think that we should have, we should have had more of an onus on greater work with the states so that we could tailor the budget a bit more? Or do you think that it should have, or do you think we even had that? I, I think this, from, from what I've read, I think this year there was quite a little bit more consultation with the states, especially, you know, on stuff like infrastructure funding. I particularly remember, I think it was Daniel Andrews saying at a press conference a few days ago that there was a lot more of that collaboration of, you know, the federal government coming and basically saying, what do you want, what do you need, which, you know, is definitely, definitely great. But, yeah, I think there needs to be more, you know, conversation, especially on industries that are hit hard. You know, one of the one of the only other things that I noticed in the budget was there's nothing for the art sector. You know, I have a lot of friends that are in the arts. I have a lot of friends that are musicians, and you know, they're one of the hardest hit industries. And there's nothing at all in the budget. You know, and, and for cities like Melbourne, which you know, we're, we're the life of, of um, you know live gigs in in Australia, and one of the best cities in the world for live performance. And you know, that's something that our our city really needs. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then on the back of that, with the changing of the university funding mm -hmm. like for arts degrees and stuff i noting the time i was wondering 
if we wanted to move on to general international topics. And Ben raised one before, and it was the New Zealand election. Now, New Zealand's going to election very shortly. Um, it is the it is in the next it's next weekend, if I believe the seventeenth. So it's in a week's time. It'll be next Saturday. Now, Jacinda Ardern is a very popular leader internationally. At the last election, um, I'm not going to lie. Um, I was surprised she formed government on the basis that the National Party got 56 seats and it's a 61 majority. So it would have been it should have been easier for them to form a majority. But um, at the end of the day, um, it was a, it was a Labor Green New Zealand first coalition totaling 63 seats, or it was I think Labor New Zealand sorry Labor NZ first coalition with Green Supply and Confidence. What we've looked, the most recent poll that came out gave the following seat projection. The Nationals will get 41, but Labor will get 60, so they will not actually get an outright majority on their own. And New Zealand First will get zero seats, um, losing all nine, including their leader, um, because they won't meet that threshold. So Labor will need to rely on another supply and confidence, or they'll have to go on a coalition with the Greens. Um, I wanted to take, I wanted to, give over to you two you know we've got this is the most new zealand's our one of our closest if not the closest neighbor we haven't really focused enough about their election in our media i don't know if most australians actually know they have an election coming mm -hmm. up um how important is it how important is the new zealand election for us i i, I think i mean i don't know uh that much in depth about the election i'll be honest actually flag that first but I think in terms of uh, at the moment the importance is possibly heightened purely just with the opportunity for a travel bubble I think that's pretty important obviously um, and just how the outcome of that and what that looks like may differ depending on who uh, comes into power um, but yeah I, I couldn't say much more because I don't want to uh, mm go beyond yeah. knowledge. How about you, yeah, Jacob? Look, I, mean, you, Jacob? I, 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 you know, I'm the same. I can't, I won't sit here and say that I know, you know, the most about the New Zealand election, but I think that, you know, like Ben said, the, the travel budget, the travel bubble issue is definitely something that very much affects us. But I think, you know, being one of our closest neighbouring countries as well, just in general, you know, their continued handling of, of the coronavirus pandemic will be very important for us and for us moving forward into, you know, a COVID safe economy, um, where you can, um, you know, kind of start to travel and start to, you know, do some stuff like that. It's very important that, you know, if there is a change in government in New Zealand that, you know, the, the coronavirus is, is managed as well as it has been there up until this point. You know, one of the things I was shocked, I read an article this morning about, you know, the, the New Zealand election and I was looking at some, some footage of Jacinda Ardern walking through a university somewhere in New Zealand and, you know, there were people everywhere there were no masks and, you know, they were just all huddled together and I was so jealous. I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, I can't even imagine being in a, 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 a an area full of that many people just close together taking selfies and everything that they were doing. And, you know, that just goes to show that, you know, how how well they've handled this pandemic. Um, so, you know, we I think it's, it's, it's crucial for Australia opening up and, and us getting back on, you know, to economic recovery that New Zealand is also handling the pandemic well. Um, you know, we're starting to see Australia, you know, we're continuing to have challenges. Obviously, you know, we've got a bit of a rise in cases in, in New South Wales. We've got Victoria that is, you know, doing, you know, excellent compared to what we were now. But, you know, we are also starting to see cases flatline a little bit, which is a little bit frustrating. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important, in, you know, especially in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic to get stuff back, back up and going. Yeah. And also yeah. just on that. On a, sorry, just on a domestic yeah, level, how uh, you know new new uh, new people in power, their policies may change in in regards to COVID and their recovery, as well as just the management of the virus itself, whether it may be more or less effective, or how it impacts people. Yeah, is something just to say as well. I think it'll be interesting you, to Ryan? see what happens. This is the least well, I've heard from your opinions. And, well, I mean, Manash, you well, know anything about New Zealand politics. Well, if, if Manash taught us anything, so for those who are in, um, myself and Sonia were running the 
Australia, New Zealand National Cabinet Committee and Ben, you were there. We did a few crises in it. And one of them was we made Jacinda Ardern lose the election and she was replaced with Judith Collins, who's the national leader. Um, and I think what that experience showed us was what policy changes would occur in New Zealand regarding, you know, if there was a change in government. My own opinion, I might be 100% wrong. Again, I don't know a lot about New Zealand. They've largely tackled it to some extent. They've largely tackled it. But I think any new government will need to now refocus their position and look to how they can prevent another outbreak, mm -hmm. any cluster, especially if they're going to open up travel again, and now looking towards treatment and vaccine work. Um, mm -hmm. and I think that's going to be crucial for whoever gets elected because New Zealand now need to think, okay, we tackled it. Um, we don't want it to come back. And now we need to open up to the work. Now we need to see who we can open up to in making those safe connections. Um, yeah. And that comes with being very careful, but also a lot of careful planning. Um, one interesting thing I found was, and I was watching, it was on a morning, it was on one of the morning news shows, and they had this scientist from the New Zealand um, University of Auckland who spoke about New Zealand's coronavirus case. I think this was when they had the second outbreak, so it was at day 102. Um and he said, um, he goes, New Zealand's actually, you know, if we look at what New Zealand's actually done, because they haven't had the out, because they haven't had an outbreak, the ball sort of dropped in some mm. areas. You know, you get complicit, you know, we're fine, nothing's going to happen. Whereas governments can't act like that. And I think every state in Australia should learn a bit of a lesson from that, just deviating. You might not have a case for 10 days or 20 days or 100 days, it doesn't mean you cannot worry about coronavirus because it just takes one person coming back from overseas who has a, who is, you know, asymptomatic, who might not come up positive, might leave the 14-day quarantine and still might actually spread it. And, um, and look, I think, I think that, you know, goes to show, you know, with New Zealand especially that, you know, for such a long time they had barely any cases and then they did have that spike and, you know, it was a very small spike, but even now, you know, they from when I last look and I'm looking at some of their numbers now, they're very low, you know, one, two, three. But the, the fact is it almost looked like they eradicated it, you know, a few months ago and now there is that that trickling along of cases. And, you know, while it looks like it's being managed, you know, quite nicely, you know, we know how easy it is for that three cases to turn into 10 and then that 10 to turn into 20 and just keeps going up like it did here in Victoria. And, you know, it, the, we're seeing the same thing in New South Wales. We're seeing hopefully, you know, a continued good management of those small little outbreaks. But still, you know, New South Wales recently had, you know, 10 days, I think, of zero cases or something like that. And, you know, and yesterday they were up to 10. And I, I think I, I still stand by the fact that almost any time there's always a little bubbling of coronavirus where, you know, you don't pick it up at all. I think that even when you have zero cases, even, for, you know, for up to two weeks, I think it's still bubbling along, you know, in some aspects of the community. And, you know, I think that just goes to show because, you know, clearly in that 10 days that New South Wales didn't have any cases, it was bubbling along very, you know, in very small dribs and drabs, but it was still there. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's concerning and a bit scary. It is, it's scary, but, you know, that also goes down to who wants to get tested. You know, you might actually have a whole community of people somewhere in the state or somewhere in the country who just don't want to get tested. Um, and that, you know, I'm not New Zealand's coronavirus free. Um, they said their recent outbreak in Auckland, which wasn't that large, was due to one case. They did sequencing tests and that's what came about. Yeah. But um, you don't know. There might be some rural community but actually has it. And I'm, I, I'm touch wood. I don't want that to be the case, but testing doesn't get everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but look, um, I think maybe let's move on. Um, did anybody else have any, um, any news stories, international ones that you think we should discuss? Uh, look, Anything? I don't know if this is, is up. I don't know if this is something you can discuss much, but just kind of a little funny note on on kind of backtracking to the VB, vp debate you know the the amount of um the amount of news coverage that the fly that got you know stuck up but that was on on um on pence's head i think that i think um <laughs> i think that 
really, 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 really showed that the debate was very, very boring. <laughs> you know, if, if a fly that sat on, on his head for, for so long can get so much news coverage across the world, <laughs> you know, it's quite funny, but I think that it shows that the debate, you know, we really didn't learn much at all from the debate. But it's all like, I think what the interesting thing about the debates, and this is why I think Kamala Harris did something smart, it's the short grabs you get from them and you make mm. them into like that three-minute summary video. And she had a lot of those strong grabs when he didn't and he had a consistent performance. But that's all That's all VP or presidential debates. It's like the last, like mm. if you look at VP memorable debates, I think the last one we probably had, and I might be wrong, was 2008 with Sarah Palin because it's Sarah Palin and, you know, it was just, how do I put it? I've never met Sarah Palin. I don't think I ever will. But also it was quite interesting in just how she went about a few of the questions and the criticism she had um, received as a candidate because she couldn't answer things um, like basic foreign policy points. And I think before that, the most interesting grab you had in a VP debate was when was um, Senator Benson against Dan Quayle in, I think it was 1988, in which Dan Quayle essentially, who became the vice president, compared himself to John F. Kennedy. And you can go search that. Um, and the senator says, I knew, yeah, I knew John F. Kennedy. Um, I served in the Senate with John F. Kennedy. Um, he was a friend of mine. You, sir, I know Jack Kennedy. And it's just like, that, that, that was a huge sound grab. Unfortunately, a lot of people didn't realise that was practised a lot by the candidate. He knew that he knew that was um, coming up, so he just had re rehearsed that. He had re rehearsed it a ton of times. So unfortunately, he did not create it on the spot. Um, and I presume even Kamala Harris, a lot of her things were rehearsed a lot with Pete Buttigieg, who was um, coaching her. Mm. But yeah, yeah. So, so much of it would be scripted. They go yeah. in definitely with a uh, strategy in mind. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's definitely stage manage, you know. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's politics, I guess. It's they they understand that they have to get out there and they have to get you know those thirty second bites, and you know they're very well rehearsed mm. for, for for just that. Yeah, yeah. just to take a different turn, Ryan, you didn't mention your thoughts on the budget. Um. So I said this to Jacob yesterday, and this sounds really bad on my part. I actually haven't read enough about the budget. Um, and that's, that's the true. reason being it was released on Tuesday. It was released on Tuesday night. Um, and I've been working on my thesis and we've had a few events this week and I've had a lot of clerkship interviews. So it's been a busy week. Um, so yeah. shamefully, I didn't actually even, I didn't, I don't, I didn't watch the budget speech, unfortunately. Um, I've watched bits of it afterwards. Um, I'm not going to, this is my, you know, I, I compare it to international budgets um, and what other countries are doing. I think compared to overseas, we're quite fortunate and lucky in that we have, you know, we have a government that has been committed to, you know, and if you think about it, a fiscally conservative budget, I think like Jacob said before, that has been willing to actually spend a lot more money than, you know, people would have anticipated. Um, and it's been the same in other countries, like in the United Kingdom. I don't think a lot of people expected the Johnson government to give everybody two and a half thousand pounds as a wage subsidy when coronavirus was in its early stages. Um, so I think that was one refreshing thing. General interpretation, any budget during a recession is going to get criticism. There's going to be, it, it's going to be hard to do an all encompassing budget. Um, my personal fears with the budget Again, I always worry about the debt that we're incurring as a country. Um, I think that we needed a lot of the stim we needed all the stimulus this year that we got, um, and stimulus will be needed for a few potentially a few more years to come. Again, I don't know too much about it. Um, the debt isn't that bad though, in, in the scheme of things, especially comparatively. Yeah, like peaking in twenty twenty four, I think is at forty four percent. It wor well, worries me on the basis of the amount of debt. We're I, I'm worried about the amount of debt we're going to have to pay back in the future. Um, and my my deep worry is, and this and it's really hard to do this during a, you know, 
doing it when the funds are urgently needed, your attention is elsewhere. But I think something I would like to see from a future government or just general planning is the development of an emergency strategy in relation to budgets during things like during national emergencies, pandemics, even wars. We need this, we need this foresight so that we can have a longer term recovery. Um, so that when we give the budget and we're saying, okay, we're spending X amount of money, we're raising the debt ceiling to 1.1 trillion. Um, but this is our way out of it over the next 10 or 15 years. Um, and fair enough, governments are going to change, but it's something that's quite reasonable and it can give the Australian people a bit of sound of mind. Because I think you've got people who say, yes, we need the stimulus, and we do. It's crucial. But you're also got, you also have a few people thinking, how are we going to get out of the? How are we going to get out of it? And then they're worrying that okay, we're spending all the money now, and we're incurring all this debt. So does that mean in five years' time we're going to have significant budget cuts and we're going to have austerity? And I think I, that's I, what a lot of people are worrying. Again, I don't know too much about the budget. I haven't read it, and I haven't looked too much in depth at it. But I do that's understand. I do understand concerns about, you know, debt, but I also think that there needs there needs to be a move away from this consensus, you know, in the media and in the Australian, you know, public that says that debt is bad because debt isn't always bad, and we know that. We know that time in a time like this, in a recession, we need to be putting money into the economy. We need to not be taking out money from an economy, and also interest rates are super low. So if we're going to go into debt at any time in history. And like we need to now, now is the time. Interest rates are low and it's it's super appropriate to go into this debt. So I think that a lot of a lot of the worry about about debt is definitely definitely justified. But I also, you know, I'd also urge people to, you know, not worry too, too much about it because it needs to happen. And, and you know, there's there's really no way about it at the moment. Our, our debt, you know, rate in Australia is nowhere near that of other countries like the US, like Japan. And we, you know, thankfully have wiggle room to be able to go into debt when we need to in situations like this. Yeah. No, I'm not dis... We need... The, sti the stimulus is needed. But again, I think we, if we can have some assurances for what will happen in the next five, ten years that we can deal with this, again, a lot will change. I know that. But I think a lot of people just in the public are thinking about their kids and their grandkids. And even our generation as well, who are going to have to eventually afford the bill, because you don't know what ha will happen in ten years. You know, if we look at a if we look at the eurozone in particular, and I know our time's up, so I'll just I'll quickly open up to you two. Then, um, if we look at like the eurozone, if we look at a country like Greece, and I'm not comparing us to Greece, please don't think that. Um, but when they entered the when they joined the eurozone, when they adopted the euro, they had all this chance to get all these loans interest at a low interest rate because they could piggyback off a lot of the stronger European economies. But then when the financial crisis happened um, and all those loans were called in, they couldn't get more loans because the interest, because nobody would give them favorable interest rates um, or guarantee them. And the other thing was they couldn't pay them back. And I think that's, you know, a short time can change a lot for an economy, um, especially during a lot of volatility. Not saying the Greece thing is going to happen to us, um, but I think that's just a thought, just to ensure that we have some sort of stable debts. Because I, you know, I don't think the majority of the country wants to see debts rise exponentially. Now it's like now we have to to cover what's happening during COVID nineteen, so that people can have a roof over their head and people can have um, safety and surety in what they're doing. Um, and they and if they do have a health issue, they only have to worry about the health issue and nothing else. Um, but I think this is a concern that people will have later on that we might have to address later on. But yeah, I'll open the floor to you two if you want to say any final remarks about anything regarding the budget, any topic, whatever you prefer. I mean, I could say a lot with what you just said yeah i just opened but, a can uh, of worms but i don't think we have time yeah <laughs> i guess i'll just briefly say we are luckily miles apart from the greece situation um obviously it's a fair point but like we have a triple a credit rating we have, we have probably one of the best banking 
uh, and regulated banking systems in the world um, that is, you know, so difficult to collapse. Um, the fact that when the government, uh, sorry, the RBA went out to secure the funds, there they had a surplus of demand by investors because the Aussie dollar is just that strong and uh, wanted by investors. Um, like it's very obvious that we can secure that funding um, to pay it in. True. Um, but yeah, I'll I'll leave it at, at, at that. Um, yeah, David. Yeah, I I definitely echo what you've just said. The Greece uh, point is valid, but you know, miles apart from from where we are now. We're in a crisis now. We're in an economic crisis. Spending is good. You know, like Ben said, we have a fantastic credit rating, a fantastic dollar, so we have capacity to borrow, and our debt rate is really not anywhere near that of, of so many other countries. The only other thing I'll add is, I think it'll be interesting to see the fallout um, from, from Australia's federal budget, um, and to see the continuing debate about, you know, where spending is going, and especially in light of what Ben, ben mentioned before with the, the changes in university fundings and kind of whispers about, you know, cuts to, to universities and also, you know, the changing of, of the industrial relations system, I think. It'll be a big year ahead, a big, a big uh, time for the government in, in the remainder of the time that they have. And we could be going to an election a lot a lot earlier than we think, which is quite interesting to, to think about. But yeah, it's been a fun time and it's an interesting time as always. And also one last thing, I'm very excited to see what happens with Trump and COVID because I did not believe any of this stuff about him being totally fine and apparently returning to the campaign trail 10 days after a positive test. But we'll, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. Um, just two things. I think we need another episode of this. So we'll try to do something else on a Saturday morning. Um, and I think there are a few topics that we need to get. Um, I think, Jake, if you opened another can of worms, it would be interesting to hear what you think about moving to potentially a fixed-term federal parliament um, so that we do not go to election early. <laughs> um, but also the other thing is, and I think one thing that I failed to mention in the budget was I'm very keen on seeing a lot of infrastructure spending in general. Um, I think there are a lot of projects around the state of Victoria that, um, and around the country um, that could be underway that would be really interesting over the next mm -hmm. decade, potentially, and that would be a really good source of jobs. Um, yeah, I, I think that was the yeah. as well. I didn't. Yeah. I forgot to mention that. I think in infrastructure was a bit disappointing. Definitely, yeah. No, I agree. Where Especially, where, yeah, when you pair it with like, I mean, yeah. infrastructure possibility is social housing, so it'd be a win-win. But, and um, we're, yeah, we're building nation. We're building nation. We need to build. Yes, I actually I read it. I read a really great um, analogy, actually, with um, you know, like spending big and what you spend on and. I think it was actually Adam Bams, um, but it was it was a an apolitical point is that the best uh, spending that you can do is out of recovery is to invest in the country and not externally. Um, mm -hmm. I thought that was a really great analogy. So like yeah, infrastructure projects that will last into the future and build the future. Acknowledging that in that. And also acknowledging that in infrastructure investment and a lot of investment in educational investment, there is a return on that. You know, it's not money that's just going out the door never to come back. There's a return on these things as well, which make, you know, that that infrastructure and that economic stimulus by way of infrastructure so much more pleasing and, and something that we should definitely be doing. Yeah. I don't think anyone disagrees. I don't think I don't think there is a political party or a politician who wants to see less infrastructure. No, um, no, no. So maybe we do another Saturday morning episode because um, our time has run out. Um, if anybody would, still wants to put any comments in the section, please feel free to. Um, but, yeah, um, otherwise, thank you all so much for a wonderful Saturday morning. We are now in actually the afternoon, Sam, it's 7 past 12. But, yeah, um, see you all soon and have a good day.
We hope you enjoyed that episode of Atlas. Atlas is the official podcast of the Monash International Affairs Society, or MIAS. MIAS is an apolitical student society at Monash University, Clayton, that works towards establishing a network for students passionate about international affairs and relations. To become a member to get access to MIAS perks and events, such as our Model United Nation workshops, our roundtables featuring experienced diplomats, and our fun social events, go to portal.msa.monash.edu. Sign in, go to Buy Club Membership, select MIAS, and fill out your personal details. You can follow Myas on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn, all of which are linked in the description, or visit our website at myas.org.au. If you have a question from today's episode or are interested in appearing on a future episode, please send an email to communications at myas.org.au. Thanks for listening. See you next time.